I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Ramon Glazov, who has written for a number of publications, including Jacobin, joins us to discuss philosopher Hannah Arendt, the SS officer Adolf Eichmann, and the problems with the banality of evil hypothesis. This conversation should be rather interesting as it provides a critique of Arendt's influential hypothesis concerning Adolf Eichmann and his trial in Jerusalem. Arendt argued that rather than being a committed soldier of the Nazi cause, Adolf Eichmann was merely a desk murderer, a bland functionary who did what he was told without thinking. Ramon takes issue with this and picks apart the banality of evil hypothesis using a rather interesting book entitled Eichmann Before Jerusalem. We'll be discussing that as well as a number of other topics, including Hannah Arendt's favorite philosopher Socrates, Adolf Eichmann's grandiose myth-making, and even how the banality of evil hypothesis has impacted psychoanalytic thought, with a particular focus on the concept of the Eichmannized pervert. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. So with all that being said, let's get right to it with Ramon Glazov. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I've enjoyed having on in the past, uh, Ramon Glazov, whose work has been featured in outlets such as Jacobin. How are you doing, Ramon? Oh, not bad. It's a lazy Sunday morning here in Melbourne. 
I guess, a perfectly um, fine time for intellectual discussion. So, and I'm pleased to be uh, back on. So on this edition of the show, we're going to be discussing uh, a rather interesting topic. Uh, Hannah Arendt, Adolf Eichmann, and the banality of evil hypothesis. So for people that don't know, uh, Hannah Arendt was a political philosopher who is probably most known for her idea of the banality of evil, which comes out of her reporting on the Adolf Eichmann trial. And Eichmann was one of the major organizers of the Holocaust. And she went to the trial, reported on it, and came to the conclusion that Eichmann was not you know, just some amoral monster. He was actually worse than that. He was a, a, a banal functionary, a, a, a bureaucrat. Uh, you know, he wasn't a thinking man. And if he had been a thinking man, maybe he wouldn't have done such horrible things. Uh, and this gives rise to this idea of the banality of evil. You know, it's not like evil is, is you know, completely calculated. The, the greatest evil is committed by the bland functionary and bureaucrats. Um, and I, you know, it's a very popular thesis. We see it um, really pervasive within pop culture and amongst a lot of liberal thinkers today. Um, Ramon, you were telling me before the show that uh, the banality of evil hypothesis sort of uh, brings to mind things like Terry Gilliam's uh, cult classic movie, Brazil. Uh, but we also see it elsewhere. I think you have uh, thinkers like Timothy Snyder that sort of, um, they don't necessarily reference Arendt's thinking, but I think they're influenced by it. So this is a really pervasive idea, and I think there's a lot of problems with it. And I know uh, you believe there's a lot of issues with it as well. So let's dig into it. How did you uh, first begin looking into uh, the issues around the banality of evil hypothesis? I guess starting with uh, looking at Adolf Eichmann, uh, because, you know, was he just this sort of uh, boring functionary or, you know, was he a true believer of uh, Hitler's cause? Hmm. Well, I guess it's uh, my thoughts about this go more to uh, reading in my spare time to things that I've actively researched for uh, writing purposes. But um, I guess I've always been fascinated by that period of history in Argentina when uh, the Nazis all hid out there, all of these ex-Nazis and pretty much fraternized in the open, uh, weren't really hiding who they'd been during the war or before and uh, had their own Nazi newspaper, their own community. And um, that strange time in, in Argentine history when uh, at the same time, Buenos Aires had one of the world's possibly the biggest Jewish community in the Southern hemisphere. Uh, and so it was a city with an enormous German speaking Jewish community, an enormous German speaking Nazi community, all in the same city. Um, and, uh, Bizarrely, their kids went to the same schools, even though the two communities of adults didn't mix. And um, for me, I guess the fascination of that time goes back to uh, my early teens when I watched The Boys from Brazil. Uh, crazy Great movie. movie. Uh, Gregory Peck, yeah. right? Yeah, Gregory Peck playing this absolutely crazy Mengele uh, and hamming it up. And... Um, you know, as a fugitive from justice in Argentina and plotting it's to clone It's the movie where they're, well. like, trying to clone Hitler, right? 
Yeah, they create 90, 90 Hitler clones in South America and send them off for adoption to families around the world to try to recreate the family dynamic that produced Hitler and create a Nazi party in every country. So uh, that, that period in history has got a certain um, fascination for me. And uh, most recently I was reading uh, Bettina Stangneth's biography, uh, Eichmann Before Jerusalem, which um, it tried to debunk the myth around Eichmann that formed partly thanks to Arendt during his trial in Israel in uh, 1961, after he got captured in 1960 by Mossad and um, investigating his life before he became that person in court, that bland middle manager who said that he wasn't really anti-Semitic, he was just following orders. And um, yeah, that, uh, his, it's something I'll go into more as we go through it, but uh, how he created this persona and uh, who, he, who he'd been before then, it's, there's a pretty interesting discrepancy there. So I guess where we should start out, um, I know you, you had some notes on, on, on all these different issues, but what do you think, before we get into Eichmann himself, why do you think the banality of evil hypothesis is uh, so prevalent? And also, what do you think the consequences of it have been? Well, um, the banality of evil hypothesis, the way I see it is it's actually several hypotheses that are interconnected. Um, the first, they weren't all, Arendt wasn't the only person who originated them, and they, they certainly had a history of at least 15 years before the Eichmann trial, but it was the Eichmann trial that gave them ammunition and uh, certainly cemented them in the public imagination. And... Um, I guess the first of these ideas is that Nazism and particularly the atrocities of the Holocaust weren't um, just some specifically German thing caused by virulent anti-Semitic uh, politics, but um, that they were it was really the dark side of the Enlightenment. That um, and this idea came from Adorno and Horkheimer. I think were the first people to propose it. Just uh, I think maybe in the closing days of the Second World War, they published uh, the Dialectic of Enlightenment. And um, here yeah, there's there's been other people since then, other than Arendt, that have gone for. I mean, there's that whole book that Zygmunt Bauman wrote, um, Modernity and the Holocaust. So this is not, yeah, yeah. you know, Arendt isn't the only one. You're right. It's a hugely it's a hugely popular thesis, and um, they the, their original argument was that uh, the Enlightenment, uh, which they basically defined as everything they hated about modernity or um, the idea that reason, through reason, man can dominate nature. They believe that this backfired by leading to um, the instrumentalization of humanity, dehumanization of people as numbers through science and measurement and uh, instrumentalization. And uh, that this was uh, basically, the Holocaust was uh, the darkest result of that. And uh, but it also was they didn't see it as an anti-modern reaction so much as the inevitable um, consequence of modernity and modernity eating itself. And um, so that's one thing that Arendt also took up. And uh, then the next part of this thesis, which is an interesting but also problematic idea, 
that uh, the Nazis, like Eichmann, weren't deviants or sickos or sadists or, uh, you know, uh, comic book villains or Shakespeare villains, but that they were normal, that um, she believed that they were job holders and family men and basically the most normy, the most norm core, maybe in today's language, um, individuals that you could imagine. And um, this normalcy, the real reason that they were capable of such evil to her wasn't because of any uh, positive element, uh, that is any presence of evil ideology or evil thoughts, but because they were thoughtless. And um, whatever she meant by thoughtlessness, now that's a bit of a can of worms because ostensibly she didn't say it was intellect. Uh, she definitely claimed that thoughtlessness or thoughtfulness and intelligence weren't the same things. Um, but she also, um, I don't think she meant it was a lack of conscience so much or a lack of empathy, because if she'd argued that, you'd just be, you'd effectively be saying that the Nazis were psychopaths, which uh, isn't exactly normal. Um, so she seemed to, she couldn't quite define what she meant by thought, uh, even though she wrote a long book grappling with the definition of thought, the, the life of the mind, that's the title. Uh, so it, it ends up, uh, the in, most interesting part of this, I guess, is that she claimed uh, that if there'd been, somewhere she claimed that if uh, thought couldn't lead to the Holocaust, that um, in other words, if Eichmann had really thought about something, he couldn't have been Eichmann. And uh, it's a very, Platonist or Christian kind of idea that evil is absence or uh, reduction of some original good. And um, so to her, a book like Mein Kampf wasn't a book full of evil thoughts, but a book full of non-thoughts, which is a very strange way of looking at it. Um, and as for its appeal, you have to think about the section of society that this banality of evil thesis is particularly seductive to. Um, even though Arendt didn't claim that intelligence or education was what she meant by thought, it's still framing the problem as something to do with critical thinking or reflection or skills that intellectuals generally pride themselves on. And um, I mean, you won't meet, and I'm, I stand guilty as charged here as well, you won't meet any intellectual who says they're not a critical thinker or that they simply, <laughs> they're simply loyal to the status quo or to received ideas. Uh, so it's a flatter, it's a very flattering idea that uh, we're not, um, we can't be like the Nazis because we think critically and uh, we're educated and <laughs> we contemplate things and grapple with concepts. So, um, and it's a, it's a flawed idea, though, because I think, as we'll go on, there is more than enough evidence that some fairly philosophically literate people who were critical thinkers still embraced um, pretty evil regimes. And um, the other, the more specific uh, appeal to Arendt, um, and Richard Wallen argued this in his book Heidegger's Children, which was about Heidegger's um, Jewish disciples or his uh, Jewish pupils and how they continued his thought even though they weren't they definitely weren't nazis um and arendt was one of the leading examples there she um she in fact had been heidegger's girlfriend and not just his student back in germany before the nazi regime 
and um, she uh, the you know, the thing that uh, is easy to overlook about her is even though she was ethnically Jewish, she identified very strongly with high German culture and um, had a very German identity, uh, had a kind of a condescending attitude towards the Israelis, uh, who um, she viewed as sort of un-German uh, backwater Jews, um, so or East European um, shtetl Jews that she weren't uh, urbanized or educated like her or middle class. So um, she, there, she did have a certain vested interest in trying to draw attention away from the specifics of German culture and uh, avoid blaming anything that was specifically German for the Holocaust. And uh, one way of doing that, of course, is to argue that it was uh, a general consequence of modernity and the enlightenment and things that transcended Germany specifically. Um, now, of course, that breaks down a bit when you look at the actual Holocaust survival rate of different places in Europe, because Italy is a perfectly bureaucratized, industrialized car manufacturing country, even in Mussolini's time. And yet it had a Holocaust survival rate of over 70 percent, one of the highest in Europe. And the Italians didn't weren't out to dob in their Jews. They treated um, the Jews more or less as fellow Italians. And um, their biggest racism in Italy wasn't really directed towards Jews, but towards other Italians, towards Northerners or Southerners, or towards the people in the next village. Um, they have a consular word in their language, paese, which um, it's often translated as village, but it's more like a micro-ethnicity, like people in this village versus yonder village. And uh, when I lived, when I lived there for a year in a town quite close to where Primo Levi, the great Holocaust memoirist, got captured. And um, in that region, they the language there, the regional language is, there are so many differences just if you drive 30 kilometers there, that it's like the difference between New York English and London English. Uh, so it's this little valley, but this enormous sort of uh, ethnic difference within that, within that valley. And that you know they have three different words for yes in the same regional language. Like uh, it sounds similar to French. So that, that's just an example of how uh, divided and um, what a mosaic of paesi there are in Italy with uh, all these little uh, squabbles between them. That they're, they're not really in a position to notice Jews so much. And um, Primo Levi, in fact, argued in his memoirs that you know he first became a Jew when he landed in Auschwitz because nobody had really treated him that way. In Italy, they uh, they certainly kind of teased him at school for having a funny uh, minority religion, but it wasn't like he wasn't really an alien; like he was a fellow Italian, uh, even under Mussolini's um, regime. So, um, on the other hand, a place like Greece, which was much more rural and much more much less modern than Italy, had an enormously high death rate for the Holocaust, like 80% or something of its Jews got sent off to Auschwitz. So um, that thesis about modernity has its problems, as you can see. And uh, it uh, develops other problems, of course, once we actually look at Eichmann's uh, real background. Which, so let's, uh, let's dig into that. Um, Eichmann's background with regards mm -hmm. to you know, this this question of um, 
Well, I, I think we should look at the before and after. So Eichmann before Jerusalem, and then mm-hmm. you know the paint, picture he paints of himself at the trial. Mm. Uh, the um, well, actually, I would I would disagree. It's actually more uh, illustrative to look at him at the trial because then you see the myth okay. that he developed. So at the trial, um, Arendt and basically Arendt's account is the one that's become the most canonical story, even though it wasn't necessarily the most accurate uh, reporting on it. Um, It still became, in many people's minds, the definitive Eichmann story, that uh, she wrote that she'd come to the trial expecting him to be a Shakespeare villain or something. Uh, She definitely used that language of uh, citing all of Shakespeare's baddies. And that's a little bit, that's immediately a little bit strange because um, she'd been writing, even before Eichmann's capture, She'd been writing shorter essays arguing that the SS weren't uh, sort of snarling villains, but that they were job holders and family men. And uh, so she'd already developed this idea well before uh, it was certain that Eichmann would get captured. Uh, So I don't know if she was being entirely honest about this initial expectation or if she was sort of deflecting that she'd already had a thesis when she came came into the trial. But... um, the relevance of Eichmann's trial is that he was the SS officer who was in charge of logistics for the Holocaust and basically organized the transportation of all the victims to the concentration camps. And, um, possibly, you know, it was one of the human beings who was, uh, if there were, if you could talk about people who were single-handedly responsible, he was, one, he was one of the closest candidates you could get to that because uh, the, um, you couldn't have had the Holocaust without the transportation. And um, before that, he'd been in charge of uh, overseeing, uh, basically bullying the various Jewish communities into emigrating before the extermination policy. And uh, so he was very, he was one of the most wanted suspects, one of the most wanted uh, war criminals after the um, defeat of the Nazis. And he hid out for 15 years before his capture in Argentina, well, um, about five years in Germany and about 10 years in Argentina. And um, they, uh, so his trial was a big event. And uh, some people did have the expectation that he would be a pathological, overtly crazy monster. Almost like uh, a Bond villain or something. Yeah. 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 Though you have to remember that, uh, and I think Arendt downplays this a bit. It was a court trial. And people in court trials don't, you know, they generally do try to present themselves as blandly as possible. You know, standard lawyer's advice is wear a suit so it shows that you respect the dress code of the court, but don't wear a fancy suit because that would look arrogant. So don't, you know, don't show too much personality in a courtroom and, um, you know, be poker faced or don't, uh, uh, don't look guilty, but don't look sort of so his uh it could really be called the banality of the courtroom but um in the courtroom he presented himself as this middle manager who was largely apolitical or not very enthusiastic about nazi causes he was just a salary man in the ss who was trying to get ahead and he was just following orders he claimed that he wasn't particularly anti-semitic i I was just doing my job type of thing yeah i was just doing my job and um he argued, you know, he um, presented some evidence or something that he had had a Jewish mistress and that he couldn't have been such a raving anti-Semite. 
uh, or that he didn't take Nazi uh, proper, you know, Nazi politics very seriously. Um, and then the most bizarre part was that he claimed that um, really, instead of Nazism, his real philosophy was Immanuel Kant, and that he'd always believed in Kant's categorical imperative, and regretted that he'd fallen short of it as a Nazi. And um, for those of you who don't know, Immanuel Kant in German philosophy, he, he has the stereotype of being the Dudley do-right of German philosophy and the ethics of duty and uh, always act as you would expect all of humanity to act in, under the circumstances. So he was making himself to be the most bland, you know, the most, uh, I guess, a humanistic do-gooder um, and... Uh, a humanitarian or someone who'd just fallen into sin with the Nazis and uh, even wrote some memoir about how he'd been, uh, he'd suppressed his inner self uh, as a Nazi. Uh, this little memoir that he wrote in Israel, that he'd suppressed his true self and fallen in for a sort of false persona. And so the other thing, now this is a little bit more uh, controversial that Arendt claimed because it wasn't, so much anything that Eichmann had said himself, but uh, you don't know, I don't really know where this supposed, where she drew this supposed fact from if she didn't make it up, because she claimed that six psychiatrists had examined Eichmann and declared him completely normal. And um, now this doesn't, this doesn't seem to be based on any facts in the trial and it's been investigated independently. Uh, there was only one psychiatrist who examined Eichmann on behalf of the prosecution, and uh, that was to stop. You know, that was a failsafe to ensure that um, he wouldn't plead insanity. So they wanted as early as possible to establish that he was sane. And um, legal sanity, of course, doesn't mean a total lack of mental health issues. A psychopath could still be legally sane, uh, for instance. And. He, uh, this psychiatrist, um, can't remember his name exactly. I think he was, um, he was a maybe a Hungarian Israeli. Uh, he um, spoke to, he examined Eichmann, and the conclusion he drew was, um, even though he didn't use the language as if personality, um, his description of him was similar to what was known at the time as the as if personality. The a person who. Um, has um, basically no authentic identity and uh, has drawn uh, that uh, it claimed that he had um, turned to the Nazi party to gain an identity and suppress his fear of causing destruction. So it suggested he was, uh, he became a sort of fake neurotic or a sort of a simulation of a neurotic who um, had very, uh, a deep phobia of violence that he suppressed. And um, now that, that's a little bit dubious. Now that diagnosis is a little bit dubious because it was based on, it, it doesn't seem that Eichmann would have been honest with the psychiatrists in Israel. So um, certainly not now that uh, we have more evidence of who he was before the trial. Um, but even so, it's not saying that he was completely normal. It was saying that uh, he did have a disturbed personality, just not um, not psychopathy per se, but uh, some sort of deficiency in his identity that made him take up this persona. So um, that's become the the standard narrative of Eichmann as the, the middle manager, 
Um, and even even that thing about the as if personality, that's not really part of the standard narrative. That's the the idea that he was a normal guy, a normal family man uh, who um, had somehow just not really thought about what he was doing uh, or treated Jews as numbers on a spreadsheet and uh, abstracted had some abstraction rather than um, seeing him as people or reflected on his actions and uh, that he wasn't so political or, you know, um, sadistic. Um, it's the idea of, um, I think Arendt calls him like a desk murderer. Um, yeah, a desk, the, the desk murderer. So now we get to the reality of who he was before the, the Israeli trial. And um, now I have to credit this book by Bettina Stangneth, who uh, she, um, Eichmann Before Jerusalem was released in 2011 in English. And uh, Stangneth is, interestingly enough, a Kantian, a German Kantian philosopher. And uh, so she's actually someone who knows Immanuel Kant and I guess is qualified to assess how well Eichmann represented him. Um, and uh, refreshingly enough, she doesn't really write like a Kantian philosopher when she's doing a biography, uh, for, uh, which is a merciful thing, um, because she writes very much like a natural biographer. And um, she did a really good deep dive on his life, uh, first as a Nazi officer, and uh, then um, about his fugitive years in Argentina. And... Um, the picture that appears here is completely contradictory to uh, the standard Arendt narrative, because as a young SS officer, I mean, he joined pretty he joined the Nazi Party pretty late, around 1932, and even though he was a latecomer, he still rose through the ranks pretty quickly, and um, he started out as a very ambitious, flamboyant, grandiose glory hound of an up-and-coming SS officer who was very eager to climb the ladder and propose a lot of original ideas and uh, become the guy who uh, had a can-do attitude, who proposed, who came up, who had a lot of initiative and came up with policies. So he wasn't just someone who was following orders. He, um, and it's also, his relationship with the Jewish people wasn't, uh, quite as dry as you would think from the banality of evil narrative. He was act he was quite intensely interested in Jewish culture. He, um, as an intelligence officer in the SS, just after Hitler took power, he was sent to spy on Jewish communities and on uh, the Zionist movement and on leftists who uh, associated with the Jewish communities. So the leftist allies, the Zionist movement. And uh, this time he um, apparently blended in perfectly with them. He, um, uh, he had this sort of demeanor at the time of being a bit like a cafe intellectual or a student. And um, he even took Hebrew lessons from somebody in the Jewish community, apparently with the permission of his superiors. So that's quite extraordinary that... Uh, uh, his loyalty to the Nazi cause was trusted enough that he could just say, hey, I'm going to ask a Jew to give me Hebrew lessons because I want to spy on them, <laughs> spy on them more efficiently. And um, so after his intelligence period, uh, he got higher in the organization. And um, you have to remember there were several SS internal house cleanings because its numbers swelled 
um, after Hitler uh, took power. And um, during this time, they decided they had too many personnel and decided to have, um, to have, okay, let's have a house cleaning of any deviants or opportunists or people who don't fit our value system. So it was far from simply a branch of government that you just joined like any other branch of the German public service. It was definitely a highly ideological, highly political organization. And um, he ended up in he ended up having the position of being the, as some Jewish newspapers dubbed him abroad, the czar of the Jews in Austria. So in a, about six years from joining the SS, he was basically given autonomy to oversee the whole Jewish community in Vienna and uh, pressure it into emigrating and uh, negotiate with Jewish leaders and lay down demands from the Nazi party and get things done. And, um, and this autonomy he was already using, uh, according to Stangneff, he was already uh, pursuing a lot of pet projects like uh, using unfree Jewish labor to um, uh, directing it towards some of his own little projects. Um, which apparently contravened Nazi policy, but the higher-ups didn't care because he was so efficient. And um, during these meetings, like, he was absolutely a Bond villain. He was like the very movie image of the Nazi in the spiffy black uniform with the riding crop, who's dapper and uh, intelligent, uh, a bit like Christoph Waltz in uh, *Inglorious Bastards*, this sort of Nazi intellectual, um, and he, uh, whenever the, the they brought the Jewish leaders in front of him, he would always try to impress them with how much he knew about their culture. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost a movie scene, like this, the, where the Nazi shows how much he knows about the enemy. You know, um, the, the opposite of that, um, kind of the inverse of Rommel, you magnificent bastard. I've read your book except it was on the Nazi side. So he was, um, they brought over, like one of the Jewish um, leaders that he had to talk to was the author of a book called The History of the Zionist Movement that he'd written two volumes. And Eichmann said, I read your book with great interest. And uh, here I can quote these paragraphs by heart. And when you write the third volume, you should have a chapter all about me. So he was frigging grandiose. Frigging um, and flamboyant. I mean, he was a show-off. He um, he ended up uh, uh, starting this crazy myth, this sort of personal legend, that he had been born in Palestine to German expats and spoke Hebrew fluently. Yeah, I wanted to get into that because I did think there was like a connection to him claiming to be a Palestinian or living in Palestine. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the um, this is the crazy myth that I, that Rent never mentioned that um, he loved to create this per persona for himself as the perfect Hebraist, like the Nazis' go-to guy for anything about Jewish culture. And um, there does seem to be evidence that he studied some Hebrew, but we don't know how much he actually knew. You, about you cut out there for a second, but, uh, You said there does seem himself. to be. There's, said, so there does seem to be some evidence that he'd studied Hebrew, uh, but we don't know exactly how fluent he was in it, but he definitely presented himself as the this Hebrew expert. And um, his, so his way of portraying himself, uh, and this was a legend he mainly repeated to Jewish leaders rather than to other Nazis, but um, he told them that he'd been born in Sarona in Palestine, which was a colony of... Um, 
some German Protestant, some apocalyptic Protestant sect that had migrated to Palestine and uh, they called themselves the Templars, not to be mistaken with the Knights Templar, but uh, just this latter, this 19th century sect. And uh, because he'd grown up in Palestine, he claimed that he spoke fluent Hebrew and knew everything about Middle Eastern culture. And um, he, uh, he, of course, was actually an Austrian, but, uh, you know, he didn't actually, um, was he an Austrian? Uh, I think so. He, um, he told, he definitely wasn't from the Middle East, but he repeated this myth. And Jewish newspapers circulated it on his behalf, basically. They, um, when the rumors went abroad, all these newspapers said that, you know, Eichmann is the perfect Hebraist. He's this highly fluent, you know, um, expert on Jewish culture. They, they took him at his word that he was born in Palestine. And even after the war, they, the rumor took a long time to die. That's, because... that, it's so crazy, too, because he is like a German Austrian. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he um there was the, like this is the craziest part after the war um there were that's when the nazi hunters that nazi hunter movement uh, arose in the jewish communities and uh, particularly simon Wiesenfall, and um they decided that they would the main place to look for eichmann would be the middle east because he'd spread false rumors he would be going to the middle east when he really went to argentina so even then, in the 50s, Jewish newspapers were circulating this story that Eichmann uh, is, uh, was born in Sorona. He is fluent in Hebrew and Arabic and knows Arabic customs so well that he can pass as an Arab without drawing suspicion and that he might be hiding out in Cairo and agitating Arab nationalists against Israel. And that was, of course, one of their biggest fears. So they absolutely latched onto this rumor and... Um, just exaggerated him to be like Lawrence of Arabia or something like this blonde German who can somehow pass as an Arab. <laughs> and um, so he was like, that's not banality. That's absolutely, that's definitely grandiose myth, you know, personal myth making and um, something that is much more, I suppose, involved in the stakes of the Nazi movement than uh, just a job holder. So um he was definitely using as a uh, so-called czar of the Jews during this time. He in, he got off on having the Jews beg, you know, beg him for uh, you know mercy and his the power he had over them. He boasted to everyone about what power he had over the community and how he had them doing everything he wanted. So you know he he did have a he he was a power tripper and. Um, so that so his career, you know, as he went up to Auschwitz, of course, he uh, and got in charge of logistics. Uh, he still had this idea that he could be one of the great uh, leading lights of the Nazi Party, and he was advising, uh, even though he never actually ascended higher in the SS than a certain, the highest rank. I think it was Obersturmfuhrer or something, the highest non-combatant rank in the SS. Um, he was giving policy advice to the very highest level of the Nazi party. I mean, the Hitler's inner circle. Uh, so, uh, you know, at Nuremberg, they were saying uh, it was, I think, um, was it Goering who said, you know, you've only caught the little swine because the big swine Eichmann isn't here. So, um, you know, he was, an, he was pretty important. He wasn't, um, um, and this image doesn't, you know, it doesn't lend well to this idea of him as, the, as a cog in the machine. 
because he was certainly coming up with ideas rather than just following them. So if we could, what's what's the benefit to Eichmann during the trial of playing up this whole, uh, you know, I was just doing my job uh, type deal? Was it just that, I mean, in, in a way, it's almost like he's saying, oh, well, you know, I'm like all these other people that were in Germany, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're all guilty. You know, I, it's not just me. You know, it's I'm, I'm, I, I didn't I was just doing my job. Is that the sort of benefit he gets from sort of um, playing down his own ideological loyalty to the Nazis? Mm. Well, that's an interesting question because it gets to um, the other part of Stangneth's investigation was what he was doing in Argentina. And the interesting thing there is I, I won't go into the whole story of his. Uh, that's a very interesting story about his whole uh, flight from uh, prosecution and uh, how he hid out. But um, the pertinent thing is that while he was in Argentina, he wrote over 3,000 pages of memoirs and essays uh, justifying himself and um, even apparently some novel, like some autobiographical novel that his family still haven't released. Um, his son, apparently Ricardo Eichmann, is a archaeologist. I think I've got, I hope I've got the name right. He's an Argentine-born German archaeologist who has absolutely renounced his father's legacy, and uh, um, I don't think he's releasing the that uh, novel part of the Eichmann papers. But the other Argentina papers, Stangneth really did a deep dive through them, and they were neglected for a long time. And um, so this showed what his views were before he knew that he was going to get captured, because at that time he believed that the Cold War would make West Germany sort of look past the whole Nazi thing and he'd be able to re-enter West German politics and lead it into a pro-Nazi direction. And um, in these papers, he, uh, for one, he doesn't, he's actually shits on Immanuel Kant he, uh, and on humanism and on all of this categorical imperative stuff. He says, uh, you know, it's silly these people think there is some universal duty that, you know, binds all of humanity. Uh, you know, there was, uh, because the Nazis believed that it was all, you know, race versus race. Every race had its own priorities. And he said the voice of the blood, you know, that's the duty, the, not, the, uh, not some humanistic uh, universalist idea of ethics, but, uh, you know, uh, Germany first, that sort of. Uh, and he was even arguing, you know, far from claiming that he was, uh, far from the later image that he was not particularly anti-Semitic or not particularly political about the Nazis. In these papers, he was saying, oh, you know, the Holocaust, it was an act of unconventional warfare because the Jews had declared war on the German people. And, uh, you know, we had to kill, you know, uh, it was all's fair in war, you know, it, it was it was the only thing we could do. Uh, so he wasn't presenting it as a genocide. He was uh, treating it uh, as a act. Of, he wasn't even treating the victims as civilians, really, but as combatants in a legitimate uh, military operation. And uh, of course, he did kind of go, he did kind of zigzag and say, oh, but of course, I was very kind to the Jews and very humane and uh, uh, had excellent relationships with the, the ghetto leaders. But of course, in the end, that we had to kill them because they they didn't play fair with us, and uh, so he was just repeating standard Nazi lies, and um, this completely belies the idea of him as a as someone who was simply dispassionately following orders. He was very furiously writing in all these papers, trying to justify the Holocaust and say that it was a a German. Uh, 
you know, all of us Germans were in it together, so nobody's really guilty because if everyone's guilty, nobody's guilty, and treating it as though the the guilt of Germany was the real tragedy, the sort of of the the Holocaust, that the having to make Germany bear this guilt, uh, you know, we're the real victims. So it's amazing that he wrote all of this stuff before Israel. It completely contradicts how he acted in court. Like he was in the courtroom, maybe he was just trying to get off easy. Um, trying not to get executed. <laughs> yeah. And he ended up, he did end up getting executed. So, um, uh, yeah. And the, this, of course, um, I guess it's interesting how close his views actually were to Hannah Arendt's uh, particular, um, uh, Hannah Arendt's hero, Martin Heidegger, because um, he, uh, Eichmann was, you know, far from being someone who was a-philosophical, he actually admired Heidegger. And uh, in Israel, he even tried to contact Heidegger asking for his opinions on the last rites. Uh, because, you know, he was Germany's greatest living philosopher. I have to know his opinion on, you know, how to face death and uh, whether I'm, he agrees with me. So he, he actually had the same, some of the same intellectual heroes as Arendt. And um, it it's also becomes paradoxical that some of this banality of evil thesis, um, it actually has a resemblance to how the Nazis ended up justifying the Holocaust and some of the same... Uh, certainly Heidegger and how so well he um, if you look at his black notebooks which were released after the after his death he didn't comment on the holocaust publicly but he wrote his views about it in the black notebooks uh, in a very oblique fashion and uh, he was writing particularly about calculation which uh, was his word for everything bad about modernity and um, earlier while the Nazi during the Nazi regime he was complaining of his fear that the Nazis would become would lose their barbarism, that they'd become some bourgeois, humanistic, uh, managerial political party, just like every other liberal party. And uh, after the Holocaust, like this is like 1945, he, uh, I think I have the exact quote here. He wrote, um, he basically argued that the Jews, he blamed the Jews for this calculation. So he saw them as the midwives of modernity, the people who had introduced calculation and uh, uh, instrumentalization into German culture and this whole modernistic viewpoint of number, you know, quantifying everything and technologizing everything. So he saw the Holocaust as really a self-annihilation. So, you know, Jewishness destroying itself, which is, has amazing parallels of what the, the Frankfurt School believed and what uh, Arendt argued that uh, he, said, he said here, this is a quote from... Um, his diaries, only when what is essentially Jewish in the metaphysical sense struggles against what is Jewish is the apex of self-annihilation in history reached. The condition is that what is Jewish has everywhere completely taken over domination so that even the struggle and that first and foremost against what is Jewish becomes subjected to that. So it's like saying, oh, the Nazis are using Jewish tools to destroy Jews. But um, Ironically, you know, he's, he doesn't even say Jews. He just says what is Jewish. So he's uh, talk, He's reducing it to an abstraction, to a cultural phenomenon, uh, to something that goes beyond, you know, human beings. So um, it's funny that when Arendt talks about this thoughtlessness, this lack of reflection, that it's that even um, 
one of her philosophical heroes is dehumanizing the victims of the Holocaust by turning them into a sort of a cultural uh, entity rather than um, individual people or large masses of people or with bodies and flesh and blood. And um, hmm, it becomes, you, I think the common uh, element there between both the, the, that 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 um, Nazi rationalization and that anti-Nazi uh, banality of evil thesis is they're both uh, in a way uh, descendants of German romanticism. Yeah, I, I was going to say, so you're not saying like the Frankfurt School view and the Arendt view and the, the Eichmann view are like exactly the same thing, but they are descended from this sort of German romantic tradition. Well, yeah, it's like um, the best way to explain romanticism to the contemporary audience would be like Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. This uh, response to the Enlightenment of, you know, scorning the its consequences of uh, over-rationality, of conformity, of modern life, um, having this de soul-deadening effect of stripping man, for, divorcing man from nature. And um, certainly William Blake in the English language is probably the the first example that pops to my mind of a uh, contemporary of that movement saying, talking about England's green and pleasant land being blighted by dark satanic mills. And um, on the Frankfurt school side, I mean, they were Marxists in a sense. So Karl Marx, uh, he had a tangible current of German romanticism in his thoughts. I mean, he definitely wrote about man's alienation from nature and the belief that, um, uh, communism would, uh, would restore something uh, and um, restore the balance. And uh, he, so they hated, they certainly hated that part of the Enlightenment uh, and that, um, or at least that that side of the Enlightenment project of, you know, reason and uh, <clears throat> instrumentalization and numbers. And um, the same with the Nazis, because they, you know, you have to remember the SS were, uh, they weren't just bureaucrats, even though they did have a, a very efficient bureaucratic system. It wasn't something they were proud of in their propaganda. They saw themselves as basically Wagnerian warriors. They uh, they weren't saying, yay, admin, that's Aryan. They were saying, like, they saw themselves as a mystical warrior elite, and they were a cult within the larger cult of the Nazi party. And uh, so... They specifically, I believe their internal propaganda even um, it denigrated the bourgeois, any sort, anything that they called bourgeois. They, they had that in common with the left. They, um, they denigrated the idea of the bureaucrat because they saw them, the SS as a new type of officer who, was, um, who wasn't bogged down by red tape but took action. Uh, so it wasn't an element they played up so much. Uh, and I don't think they uh, would have tolerated the idea of anybody simply being a mere functionary who wasn't politically invested in the cause. So we've talked a lot about, you know, okay, how does Eichmann benefit from playing this sort of, I was just a functionary lineup. We've talked about, you know, maybe uh, a rent's stake in that line of, of uh, looking at Eichmann that way. Uh, but what what are the ultimate consequences? Um, one thing I, I know that you've noted is the ways in which we sort of get this stereotype of ignorance equals evil um, mm. out of the Eichmann trial and the banality of evil uh, sort of hypothesis. So 
how can that hypothesis end up actually um, obscuring reality in some ways? Like I, I know, for instance, you brought up uh, the issue of colonialism, right? And, you know, we can end up mm. looking at it through a banality of evil sort of lens and saying, oh, these were just um, ignorant white men rather than, you know, rather cunning uh, sort of administrators that were deliberately doing what they were doing. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I think I've said that in private conversation, it does. Um, and colonialism is a good example because I notice in a lot of uh, what you'd call sort of academic post-colonial um, discourse, there's an idea that colonialism's mistake was people, you know, ignorant white men making the sort of mistakes that a student would make in an English essay or the sort of ignorance, the sort of uncritical thinking about um, inequality or about culture or uh, being ethnocentrist. And um, I'm not sure that was the case or that was the real problem because uh, when you look at how it was actually handled, they, uh, particularly in India or in the Dutch East Indies, these administrators were quite cunning at uh, figuring out Indigenous hierarchies and how to abuse them and how to... Uh, um, they didn't simply try to impose Western values onto these cultures, but um, at least maybe the Spanish, you know, wasted a lot of time trying to make everybody speak Spanish and become Catholic. But the British, they they thought, okay, we don't need to turn these people into Christians rather than Hindus or, you know, try to mass Christianize them or turn them into mass English speakers. Um, and uh, instead they said, well, look at these Maharajas, let's rule through them and figure, you know, the preserve the hierarchy, understand how things function there, and then uh, use them as a proxy to rule through. And uh, in Australia, I mean, I've seen cases in Australian history where it, it did seem that uh, the people who took over West Australia were paying careful attention to the to conflicts between Aboriginal people and how to exploit them. And um, so it wasn't simply ignorance or some sort of cultural outside of them. They, they were... Um, and in a sense, like Eichmann, he was actually intensely interested in Jewish culture. So it wasn't a, a simple uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, we just view them as numbers or as uh, cattle or beans to count. So it often, the other thing is that when you think about the, the so-called global south, it's a little bit perilous to normalize, to um, turn Nazism into the paradigm of evil and genocide. When you look at uh, something like Rwanda, it's not um, this narrative that, you know, Auschwitz happened because people were face, you know, it was an inauthentic bureaucratic facelessness of people being numbers on IBM machines and trains and everybody killed from a desk or from a distance and uh, no direct you know, people living in the moment face to face, as the, the meme goes. Um, it, um, I mean, in Rwanda, it was a very low tech genocide with basically machetes and guns and a little bit of radio propaganda. But uh, it still shows that quite recently, you still have, um, you know, very significant genocides are committed face to face in what I think Arendt or Heidegger might have called authentic circumstances, like pre modern. Uh, direct murder. So it, it underestimates how necessary modernity is to evil, in my opinion. Also, I was wondering if you could, and, and we'll get to, um, I want to talk a little bit about Socrates, and, and I know you wanted to get into that, but first, um, what do you think the effect of 
Arendt's thinking on this issue, this banality of evil hypothesis. Uh, what do you think that effect has been on, say, you know, areas of psychology or even psychoanalysis? So like mm. uh, the Milgram experiment. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting thing, too, because Arendt, um, that banality of evil thesis, it's captivated both very Anglo uh, thinkers and continental philosophers as well. So it's um, Arendt was in an interesting position because she'd migrated to America. She presented this idea to the New Yorker. Uh, so it was taken up by Anglo thinkers like Milgram, who um, he devised a rather controversial experiment of getting, of tricking people into thinking that they were zapping uh, a lab subject and subjecting him to extreme pain when it was an actor and uh, tried to use this as proof that ordinary people could uh, be made to commit evil acts if they obeyed authority. Uh, and people have, um, there have been issues about the replication of that experiment and also whether Milgram uh, presented, you know, reported it accurately because when people went through the original data that, or the, the stuff that he was uh, gathering, uh, they found that apparently the tests of the subjects that he was um, subjecting to this test actually did make objections to it. I mean, eventually they did press the button, but they were saying, you know, I don't want to do this. You know, can I stop? Or, And the scientist was just telling them, you have to do it. And so they took quite a lot of pressuring and some of them even saw through it and said, okay, this, this isn't real. This is all a, <laughs> a sham. And um, there's the issue there that it wasn't really the same conditions as the Holocaust because they weren't told that they were killing people. They uh, were simply told they were causing pain and they weren't, um, it wasn't done in a circumstance of an ethnic group being vilified. Uh, so there were a lot of different, you know, variables there that didn't make it a, an exactly accurate um, analogy to committing a genocide. Um but on the other, the continental side, it um, particically, it goes all the way to Zizek today, is how it influenced- I wanted to touch on that. Go on, go yeah. on. Is how it influenced this idea of the pervert, uh, because- Eichmannized pervert. <laughs> yeah, the, Eichmann, the Eichmannization of the pervert. Um, to give context, um, French culture in general has been quite interested in the Marquis de Sade, you know, the, to some extent, even um, some people in France today would even call the Sade the French Shakespeare, which is a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, there were certainly in the 20th century intellectuals absolutely fascinated by his pornography. And um, French psychoanalysis has always been quite interested in perversion, not just uh, Lacanian um the not just his particular breakaway school but even mainstream french analysis and um so this figure in psychoanalysis that uh, we could call the pervert um it's been framed in different ways by different schools but the general idea is it's a person who has some fusion of opposites um and there's disagreement about which opposites but it could be something like good and evil or abuser and caretaker or um, law and desire, that's the Lacanian model. So they have, uh, it's something like, the, say, the Munchausen's mother who dotes on the child and cares about the child, but also poisons them to the Munchausen by proxy mother, or uh, the pedophile who claims that he's, uh, you know, raping children in their best interests and, you know, helping the pederasty is helping them. And so, um, and uh, this idea, um, I mean, 
I think it's I think there's legitimacy to it, and um, you know it's not necessarily evil. I mean, there are cases where I suppose there've been perverse literary figures like Patricia Highsmith and Yukio Mishima and Nabokov, who uh, you know they they were they were I guess decent citizens, except maybe apart from <laughs> apart from Mishima's um, seppuku and Highsmith's um, you know private shenanigans. But I mean, certainly they there have been examples of people who were just creative figures that had this sensibility. But um, in um, after the Eichmann trial, this idea emerged that, uh, particularly with an essay by Lacan, Kant with Saad, that uh, suddenly it's curious it appeared just after Eichmann's. Uh, basically around 1963, 64, just after Eichmann's execution, really, um, he, it's, he suddenly started mentioning Kant in relation to the Marquis de Sade. And um, that might be, to my knowledge, that might be the first time this idea emerged of the pervert as someone who's just following orders from above. So the pervert is suddenly no longer this... Uh, sort of interesting sicko deviant but uh, or, or this libertine but this functionary who is following commands from the big other as Lacan put it and um, now that I mean that that concept it has it's an interesting idea and there are people who've done interesting things with it but the consequence with uh, as it's evolved towards Zizek is it's become you know the pervert is the perfect conformist uh, that, um, you know, it's only hysteria that's radical while perversion is really conformity. And uh, so it's become really an Arendtian rather than a Freudian idea that the pervert is this functionary, this, this uh, uh, minion who follows orders and is uh, kind of acting on behalf of uh, higher powers. And, and you've seen, I've read essays where people actually say that, you know, perversion is never radical, that it's inherently conservative. And um, it's even been criticized by the Lacanians. There was one called Judith Feyer Gurowicz, who said, um, you know, before perversion was kind of denigrated because it was uh, considered to be like homosexuality, a sort of taboo practice right it was it was the conservatives attacking yeah, the idea of perversion yeah, it was a, yeah. like before before in psychoanalysis it was a conservative attack on it while now it's kind of um marginalized and out and tabooed because it's supposed to be on the side of the establishment and um so it's led to this weird false analogy between psychodynamics and politics of so the pervert is always on the side of the establishment and you know always represents the status quo um and there's, I don't think there's much sense in it. I mean, it could a person of any psychodynamics could be with any sort of really be aligned to any sort of politics, and um, it didn't. It seemed to, uh, I guess, in this sense of the superego or the higher power or the big other, they um, to assume that the a person following it would necessarily follow the status quo rather than some private idea of good uh, or some private idea of authority. Um, I think that's the, the key mistake because every, you know, uh, the superego isn't necessarily human cultural values or the societal values. It could be just anything the parents instilled in the child or any sort of role model that they've had, um, however vague. Um, I mean, a person raised by criminals might consider a dog eat dog sort of figure to be their superego. So it's... Um, I guess it it kind of underestimates or does a disservice both to the 
the most benign perverts and to the most evil sort. Um, and, and certainly in, in the Marquis de Sade, they've had a, a um, this idea that that was actually part of the general trend, um, the general truism about Sade that appeared in the, uh, after the 50s of him as this actually bland, banal figure who, um, instead of seeing him as this, uh, <laughs> as this amazingly grotesque pornographic writer who was sometimes hilarious, you know, you have Foucault saying, oh, Sade is an accountant of the ass." or his... Um, they, they almost portray him as, like, humorless. <laughs> yeah, like this humorless, yeah, and this link of him to Kant certainly reinforces that, uh, even though that they, there is some truth to it, maybe. But the um, it kind of downplays just how hilarious he is. Like, he's not just measuring... Uh, in his novels, they uh, the part that this uh, this Saad as a boring uh, accountant figure, what it latches onto is that he always has dick measurements in his novels. But um, when you actually read it, he doesn't, you know, he's making dick jokes. It's always like this character's penis was 18 inches long and, you know, its girth was like a woman's wrist. So he's making free, he's using numbers to make grotesque sort of hyper, hyperbole and exaggerated penis measurements of characters. He never gives people like average body parts. He, whenever he uses numbers, it's always some joke. So um, people kind of downplay the humor inside when they treat him as like some sort of uh, statistician of, of deviancy and sexuality. Um, so they've, uh, and he was really the ancestor of, to me, he was really the ancestor of Ian Fleming with exotic tortures and villain monologues and people with grotesque bodily deformities. He, uh, like Ian Fleming's James Bond novels were taking Saad and turning it into a mass market success story, like a franchise that uh, toned down a little bit on the porn. And um, I mean, there was still torture porn in it, but he, um, but it turned Saad into like a mass market franchise. So, like, Saad definitely is the Bond, to me, that Bond villain ideal is also very much a part of that. The, um, uh, what's supposed to be the antithesis of the banality of evil. Um, I, I actually think that Saad was the, was the antithesis of that. He was the, the, the ancestor of the Bond villain formula. So, yeah, um, I think we might just have time to talk about Arendt's philosophical hero. I, I wanted to touch on that because I know you were very interested in talking about Socrates. Well, here, um, it's interesting when she starts talking about what thinking actually is. Um, her main, you know, she wrote The Life of the Mind kind of as a separate uh, thing after the banality of evil. And um, her example is she's a little bit vague about what thinking really uh, what she means by this thinking, except that it's not, it cannot be Nazism. And um, she, uh, her example is Socrates, how he talks about basically wanting me time, you know, time to himself away from the crowd and how he needs to reflect, you know, reflect on things to himself. And that, you know, he would give up all the friends in the world for his me time, like if, it, if he had a choice between one or the other. And, uh, you know, she values this concept of, uh, you know, distance from the crowd and, self, you know, solitude and self-reflection. And um, I think it's a weird example. Socrates is a weird person to choose for that, because if you're trying to have a 
you know, an anti-totalitarian project and promoting thought as the antidote to totalitarian atrocities. Because um, when you look at Socrates' actual career, he wasn't pro-Athenian democracy at all. He um, was part of the oligarchic party or the oligarchic faction in Athenian politics. For the last four years of his life, he had a black mark against his name because he, um, because of his involvement with the 30 tyrants, the Spartan uh, puppet government that uh, killed about 1,500 Athenians. And um, his pupil, um, Critias, who was also Plato's great uncle, happened to be the, the big tyrant of the 30. And um, the, according, like, the only records we have of Socrates' actual life are from people who are with the oligarchic party as well. So Plato was obviously, you know, the dictator's uh, great nephew. Uh, Xenophon was also one of the officers of that group. Um, and uh, by their accounts, he, um, he was never pro like, he was never pro democracy he was really pro-spartan and um pro-oligarchic but he only really resisted or objected to the 30 tyrants once they reached their worst excesses but even then he was uh, what xenophon has him do is a little bit meek like he um, he tells critias oh uh, you know i would th- if a shepherd you know if a cow herd diminished the size of his herd of cows, then I would consider him a bad cow herd. And if a politician diminishes the size of his uh, his subjects, uh, his, his population of subjects, I would consider him a bad politician. So, I mean, that sounds a little bit, you know, uh, intellectual and arch and just kind of, you know, soft <laughs> when someone is killing people left, right and center. And, um, during this regime, he never, uh, when they told him to stop teaching philosophy to commoners, he obeyed. Like he kind of nitpicked a little bit, a bit and said, okay, well, now that you've clarified it, I'll do it. So he, um, and his, his actual trial after the Athenian d- uh, democracy was restored and the tyrants were killed, um, because there was a general amnesty towards everyone but the actual, uh, the top command of the tyrants, uh, they couldn't try him for his involvement with that regime. So yeah, they, there is a theory that uh, the trial was partly motivated by revenge against what he'd done by associating with them and staying in the city of Athens during their reign. And um, now I'm not going to say, I'm not going to go full Karl Popper here and say that Plato was the, you know, the midwife of totalitarianism or that- Right, the proto-fascist. Yeah. yeah, they weren't. They weren't proto. I wouldn't say they were proto-fascists. They were a typical pre-modern political faction that took over a town and killed their opponents or exiled the rest of their opponents, and th- that sort of thing was common. I mean, it happened in Dante's lifetime in Italy as well. It um, it wasn't a party that tried to systematically reshape all of society and uh, control all of these institutions and reshape them. Um, They were just basically ousting their political opponents and killing anyone who was disloyal and stealing their property. So, um, but on the other hand, he did when everything Plato as Socrates say about politics, it's not very pro-democratic. He compares his favorite metaphor for government is herding cattle and, um, that uh, I don't think Plato's Republic was actually meant as a serious blueprint for a real society because uh, 
those the ancient world was extremely patriarchal and if a philosopher king had actually proposed eugenics and uh, taking away people's custody of children you know the father's custody of children or the father's right to arrange marriages i mean they would have killed that guy in, a, in two seconds but um it was still like he's not he wasn't someone who was a friend to uh uh, a friend to democracy, even in the narrower ancient sense of the term. So, so th th this all kind of ends up going against Arendt's idea of, um, you know, someone who thinks critically won't, you know, compromise yeah. with despots and tyrants. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he was a he was a critical thinker, but he still um, he still ended up embro too embroiled with that government. He didn't flee Athens. And, um, you know, the, there's an interesting book, The Trial of Socrates by I.F. Stone, where they argue that um, if they'd simply killed him because he was impious, why did they wait until he was 70? Because they, uh, he'd had a reputation for years as the court jester or the funny man of Athenian society, and they, they, they were tolerant of that. They, didn't, uh, they liked to have their gadflies and their court jesters and their, uh, you know, their scoundrels or their rascals, their friendly rascals. So they... They ended up waiting. They only pressed those charges against him when he was 70. And it was a very weird charge of impiety. It was hard to define legally. And um, he seemed he seemingly made a good defense against it, but they still ended up killing him. So um, Stone, even though he's a little bit leans on the Karl Popper side, he still argues that um, it was probably to do with his involvement with the tyrants and uh, that he... Um, uh, it's possible that he actually wanted to be a martyr because he didn't resist. Um, he didn't uh, buckle down for the new democratic government, but actually resisted them until they killed him and he didn't escape. So um, he seemed to, you know, he complied with the tyrants, but he didn't comply with uh, the reinstated Athenian democracy. And, uh, you know, he was willing to die actually against um, he was willing to be martyred by a democratic government, but not by the tyrants. And um, so that's, that's why it makes him a very funny hero for a rent. So in closing, um, just if we could for a few minutes, uh, with regards to a rent and the banality of evil and Eichmann, um, just tying it all in a bow, because we've covered a lot of different ground from um, how the hypothesis is, has affected psychology uh, to, you know, how it affects the way we think about evil. What are like the, are, are there real world consequences, I guess, to the banality of evil um, sort of lens that people use to examine uh, the world and, you know, this concept of evil? Like what, what are the real world negatives that have come out of viewing it simply through this lens? Mm. Well, it, it downplays the specificity, the, the, the fact that you do need some racial prejudice or things like the Germans had, that it wasn't simply um, thoughtlessness per se or modernity per se, but there, were, there was something culturally specific behind the, the Holocaust that people still needed to pay attention to. A very specific bigotry, yeah. Yeah, a very, a very specific bigotry uh, because... Um, and even, and in a sense, even that bigotry, it, it wasn't, it transcended, you know, party uh, sort of uh, philosophical lines or what people thought about modernity because, you know, Heidegger mightn't have approved of calculation. He mightn't have approved of uh, the industrial way of life, but he still, 
he was still on board with uh, the consequences of the Holocaust when he heard about them. And um, so trying to immunize people against certain kinds of positivistic thinking or um, over-scientific thinking of humanity it's, uh, or instrumentalization, those things, they come across as slightly superficial because if someone's a bigot, a real hardcore bigot who hates an ethnic group, they're not going to mind if they're killed by industrial desk murderers. They're not, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, if you really hate someone, you're not going to care if they're killed by a machete or by a uh, bureaucratized regime. So it, it plays down the real, um, the hatred component. And um, when it's used also as an ex excuse for depsychologization of this, um, of course, you know, psychological profiling doesn't really, it, it can't be, um, regimes aren't reducible simply to the personal psychology of the people involved. But um, because there are always, every society is going to have a certain personality disordered proportion of the population. But um, on the other hand, they, those are the sort of people once there's an opportunity and once there's a suitable form of bigotry and a system that uh, enables it. I mean, uh, it's a little bit of a mistake to think that just anyone could be Eichmann. And um, it's, it's, in a way, it's a very um, elitist argument. Uh, I was going to say, it, 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 in a way, like the whole argument takes our attention away from the regime that, that made the decisions and, and even the intellectuals who supported it and makes us focus on oh, it's just these bland functionaries to do what they're told. And in a way, it, it, it sort of um, moves our attention in one direction while missing out on the other uh, aspects. Hmm. Well, yeah, uh, very remarkable. I mean, the, the thing to keep in mind of the Nazis is they had a very, uh, the range of different minds that aligned themselves to that cause was quite diverse. I mean, there were highly, some Nazis were just thugs and, and boorish uh idiots who had no culture or no real interest in uh, poetry or philosophy or art. But on the other hand, you did have highly cultured people in the Nazi cause as well. And uh, Stangneth observes that uh, Eichmann probably wasn't that philosophically illiterate. He, she believes he actually did understand Kant pretty well for a layman. And uh, of course, some of these SS officers were highly cultured people. They uh, were well-educated. Uh, Eichmann hadn't actually gone to university, but he was still well-read. And um, they, uh, of course, you saw other people in the Nazi cause like Ernst Junger and uh, Karl Schmitt and Martin Heidegger, who were by no means stupid people, but um, were still involved, you know, were still on board with that overall agenda. And um, there's definitely, uh, they knew what they were supporting. It, they were definitely intelligent and thoughtful enough to know what they were supporting. And it wasn't simply ignorance or any sort of mental numbness that made them um, into Nazis, but uh, a definite positive element, uh, and by positive I mean present in their minds of hatred and uh, you know certain pet prejudices or um, chauvinism. So... It, it's not this sort of negative, uh, purely negative view of evil, of evil as the absence of thought or the absence of good or uh, the absence of some virtue, but I think we do have to view evil as a presence of something bad. In, in closing, what do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've had 
uh, about Arendt Eichmann and the banality of evil for, you know, the past hour or so? Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's up to what each listener makes of it. I, I can't dictate to them what. They have uh, to use their critical thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't think we should completely look away from the legacy of modernity in the Nazi Party. That's still a relevant thing because it, it touches on everything in society. Um, I mean, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything that hasn't been influenced by the Enlightenment. But on the other hand, that once you you generalize things too much people look away from the uh some of the specific factors and uh, i also think the eichmann story is pretty damn i mean even as a uh, a highly readable uh person you know scenario um it's uh, his life it does have that certain novelistic value that i've uh, that was certainly a page turner for me that uh, is a rather fascinating portrait of that of a human being who um, his rise and fall and uh, duplicity. And um, I think people should be a little bit more cautious about how never to trust the Nazi when they, of what they say in court about themselves. So. I think that's good advice to live by. Uh, thank you again, Ramon Glasoff. How can my listeners keep up with what you're doing? I know you occasionally write articles and whatnot. So uh, anything mm. you want to plug? Uh, not for now, um, but uh, I guess next time maybe. Okay. Well, thanks again, Ramon Glasov. Always a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ramon Glasov. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Recently, I've been slowing down the number of shows I release. This is mainly because I've been told that it can be a bit hard to keep up with multiple shows in one week. So let me know if you prefer me releasing the shows a little bit more slowly. Would love to hear from you on Twitter at ViewsParallax. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.